Bibles <clears throat> to Ezekiel chapter 23. Ezekiel 23. The message or the title is The End of a Kingdom. The End of a Kingdom. Once again, God is asking Ezekiel to go out and to tell the people another strange parable. Remember, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Here is the parable about two sisters. One's name is Ahola, and she represents Israel, or Samaria, the capital of Israel. And the other sister is Aholabah. She represents Judah. When Ezekiel started telling the people this parable, they probably looked at each other with kind of a smirk and said, oh man, here he goes again. This guy's really out there. These stories he keeps telling us. Now, where in the world is he going with a story like that? This chapter, 23, is a lot like chapter 16 because it describes Israel's history. And Israel's falling away from the Lord. And in both chapters, the image is that of prostitution. Israel breaking her marriage vows with Jehovah God. And like a prostitute, going to others for help. But in chapter 16, the sin is idolatry, that is, trusting the false gods of the pagans, while in chapter 3, the sin is trusting other nations to protect her. In chapter 23 here, Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom, are playing the harlot, and they're looking for help from Assyria, Babylon, and Egypt instead of trusting God to lead them and to rescue them. And during the reign of, of Rehoboam, Son, uh, Solomon's son, the Jewish uh, nation divided into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, the northern kingdom, Israel, and, and the southern kingdom, Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel almost abandoned <clears throat> the true faith right away. They started to worship idols, and they eventually set up their own temple and their own priesthood, while the southern kingdom of Judah tried to stay true to the law of Moses. But things got so bad in Samaria that in 722 B.C., God brought the Assyrians to conquer them and to put an end to the nation. Judah had a few godly kings who tried to please the Lord. But the nation gradually fell apart and it was taken by the Babylonians in 606 B.C. to 586 B.C. Now, Ahola, again representing Israel, uh, the capital of Israel being Samaria, and her sister Aholabah, which represents Judah, the capital was Jerusalem. Ahola means her own tabernacle. That's what the name Ahola means, her own tabernacle or tent. While Aholabah means my tabernacle or tent is in her. So when the Jews would hear the word tent, most of them would think of the tabernacle where God dwelt with his people. The northern kingdom of Israel had its own sanctuary and priesthood in Samaria, as well as idols and shrines and all through the land, but was her tent and not the Lord's tent. But the Mosaic law was still kept in Judah, even though it wasn't always obeyed, <clears throat> and the Levitical priests still served at the temple that Solomon built by God's direction and authority. Looking at Jerusalem with all of her sins, the Lord could still say, My tent is in her, Aholabah. The glory had departed from the temple, 
but the temple was still known as God's dwelling place. So if that is the background, we can now look at this parable and see how it applied to the Jews in Ezekiel's day and how it applies to us, God's people, in our own day. The main message that the Lord wanted Ezekiel to get across to his people that he was perfectly right, God was perfectly right and perfectly fair for punishing the kingdom of Judah because of the way they had behaved toward him. The Lord made three statements. Judah arrogantly ignored God's warning when he judged Samaria in verses 5 through 13. And then Judah went beyond the sins the Samaritans committed in verses 14 through 21. And so the Lord had every right to judge Judah, verses 22 through 35. Chapter 23 can be divided into four parts. One part, verses 1 through 10, which introduces the two sisters and describes the harlotry of Ohola, or Israel. The second part, verses 11 through 21, describes the harlotry of Aholabah, again representing Judah. The third part, verses 22 through 35, gives four prophecies of judgment dealing with Aholabah. And verse 4, or part 4, I should say, is verses 36 through 49, reviews the record of the two sisters and predicted their judgment. So to start off, verses 1 through 10 covers the two sisters. Let's begin with verses 1 through 4 of chapter 23. And Ezekiel says, The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Son of man, there were two women, the daughters of one mother. They committed harlotry in Egypt. They committed harlotry in their youth. Their breasts, were there, their breasts there were embraced. Their virgin bosom was there pressed. Their names Aholibah, I'm sorry, Ahola, the elder, and Aholibah, her sister. They were mine, and they bore sons and daughters. And as for their names, Samaria is Ahola, and, Jer- and Jerusalem is Aholibah. The parable about the, parable about the sisters <clears throat> is, is given here to us. Several points are given about the two sisters. First, they had the same mother, according to verse 2. So this meant that they probably had the same upbringing and the same opportunities while they were in Egypt. Second, both sisters became prostitutes while they were in Egypt, according to verse 3. This was a reference to the roots of their idolatry. And it could be traced to their everyday experience while they were in bondage in Egypt. Third, Their prostitution started when they were young, according to verse 3. Fourth, they had names that identified their character in verse 4. And fifth, they belonged to their father, verse 4 says. He says, they were mine. The mother of these daughters is a reference to the shared origin of Jerusalem and Judah in the United Kingdom under Saul, David, and Solomon, going all the way back to to Father Abraham. They didn't learn their prostitution at home but from foreigners in Egypt, according to verse 3. Egypt has hints of early examples of idolatry and spiritual prostitution. And because when the Israelites came out of Egypt, they rebelled against God and Moses, and they made a golden calf. Remember, Aaron had made the calf for the people, and they worshipped it as a substitute for Jehovah God. From the time Ahola, or Israel, was young, she was guilty of being unfaithful. But God didn't cast her aside. He was faithful to his promise that he made to Abraham. Listen to the promise of Abraham he made to Abraham in Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 11. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a, 
a, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you are more in number than any other people. For you are the least of all the peoples, but because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. And he repays those who hate them, hate him to their face, to destroy them. And he will not be slack with him who hates him. <clears throat> he will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which I command you today to observe them. Now, verses 5 through 10 covers the rest of Ahola's history of prostitution with Assyria. And it's summed up by describing Ahola's history of prostitution with Assyria by describing how she lusted for the attractive Assyrian warriors, notice in verses 5 through 6. Ahola played the harlot even though she was mine. And she lusted for her lovers, the neighboring Assyrians who were clothed in purple, captains and rulers, all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding on horses. Look at verses 7 through 8 now. This, is the, this talks about the political partnership and the obsession with Assyria. Verses 7 through 8. Thus she committed her harlotry with them. Speaking of those just mentioned in verses 5 through 6. And all of them choice men of Assyria and with all for whom she lusted. With all of their idols she defiled herself. She has never given up her harlotry brought from Egypt. For in her youth they had lain with her, pressed her virgin bosom and poured out their, Im their immorality upon her. So this political partnership and this obsession they had with Israel spread over into the area of their worship. There were Assyrian forms of idolatry that were accepted and, and mingled in with Hebrew worship. <clears throat> so it was kind of custom-made methods of worship, of idolatry, that they learned in Egypt. Look at verse 9. Therefore, like a result of what was just looked at here in the previous verses, therefore I have delivered her into the hand of her lovers, into the hand of the Assyrians for whom she lusted. Judgment came when Samaria again, or Ohola, was delivered into the hands of her lovers, the Assyrians. The capture of sons and daughters and the killing of Ohola with the sword referred to the exile that came when Samaria fell in 722 B.C. at the hands of Shalmaneser V. Look at verse 10. They uncovered her nakedness, took away her sons and daughters, and slew her with the sword. And she became a byword among women, for they had executed judgment on her. So the Assyrians, it says, they stripped her naked. It says that they took away sons and daughters, and she became a proverb or a byword for punishment. And it says parts of the land were literally stripped as the Assyrians cut all the lumber and carried away many natural resources. Now, verses 11 through 21 speaks of Aholabah, the younger sister. Look at verses 11 through 21 now. And it says, Now, although her sister Aholabah saw this, she became more corrupt in her lust than she, and in her, and in her harlotry more corrupt than her sister's harlotry. She lusted for the neighboring Assyrians 
captains and rulers clothed most gorgeously, horsemen riding on horses, all of them desirable young, young men. And I saw that she was defiled. Both took the same way. But she increased her harlotry. She looked at men portrayed on the wall, images of Chaldeans portrayed in vermilion or bright red, girded with belts around their waist, flowing turbans on their heads, all of them looking like captains in the manner of the Babylonians of Chaldea, the land of their nativity. As soon as her eyes saw them, she lusted for them and sent messengers to them in Chaldea. Then the Babylonians came to her into the bed of love and they defiled her with immorality. She was defiled by men and alienated herself from them. She revealed her harlotry and uncovered her nakedness. Then I alienated, God says, then I I alienated myself from her as I had alienated myself from her sister. Yet she multiplied her, her harlotry in calling to remembrance the days of her youth when she had played the harlot in the land of Egypt. For she lusted for her paramours, whose flesh is like the flesh of donkeys and whose issue is like the issue of horses. Thus you called to remembrance the lewdness of your youth when the Egyptians pressed your bosom because of your youthful breasts. The younger sister, named here Judah, okay, saw the perversions of her older sister, Ahola or Samaria. And her destruction. But she didn't learn from the knowledge of the terrible consequences. Instead, she did the same thing and even became more depraved than her sister, verse 11 says. It says she lusted after the same kind of political friendships that proved to be Samaria's downfall. Just like Ahola was attracted to the Assyrians, as described in verses 5 through 6, Aholibah was attracted to the Babylonians. Aholibah looked at men portrayed on the wall. In other words, she saw figures of men of, of, of Babylon portrayed on the wall, according to verse 15, uh, 14. The Syrians and Babylonians, they were known for decorating walls with carved sculptures of the soldiers. Some of those carved sculptures were 10 to 12 feet high. And it showed the greatness and the victories of the empire. Seeing the Babylonians with their warriors' belts and their turbans stirred up a desire to be partners with them. Messengers were sent. The partnership was a done deal. And as a result, Judah's defilement also was a done deal. But like all unequally yoked partnerships, these were God's people with ungodly people. It was no sooner complete, this partnership, than she was disgusted by the Babylonians. Judah turned away in disgust from them. God was also repulsed by Judah's behavior. And he turned away from her in disgust, verse 18 says. Now, in the following verses, the words that God used shows that he was so displeased with Judah and Jerusalem. Notice in verse 17, it's the words that, that she alienated, her, alienated herself from them. Is just like what God said in verse 18. He says, I alienated myself from her, her sister. That is, she, Judah, also played the harlot and became more and more loose. And Judah's behavior brought back memories of those days when the nation was young and when the people worshipped the golden calf in the wilderness. The calf produced lewd, sensual worship and uncontrolled idolatry. Also, Judah's political prostitution was presented in graphic language in verse 21. 
It says, this idolatry produced the same disgust by God that drove him to wipe out their forefathers in the wilderness for worshiping the gods of Egypt. In verse 20, notice, it says, Judah lusted for her lovers. It says, whose genitalia was like those of donkeys and whose emission of semen was like that of a horse. This language shows God's hatred and his disgust for those who are attracted by the military power that's described by its reference to sexual potency. This, this section was, was from the New American Commentary on Ezekiel. All of the examples of the sins of the past recorded in God's word, they're warnings to us. They're loud warnings to us. They're important warnings to us about the ultimate consequences of sin. But amazingly enough, I mean, shockingly, People still reject God. And they still choose a life of sin and rebellion. And Paul said in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6 and 11, he says, these things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age at this time. Then in verses 22 through 35, Ezekiel prophesies of the judgment to come upon Jerusalem. Verses 22 through 20, uh, to 35. Therefore, Oholibah, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will stir up your lovers against you, for whom you have alienated yourself, and I will bring them against you from every side. I will bring the Babylonians, all the Chaldeans, Pekod, Shoah, Koah, all the Assyrians with them, all of them desirable young men, governors and rulers, captains and men of renown, all of them riding on horses. And they shall come against you with chariots, wagons, and war horses, with a horde of people. They shall array against you buckler, shield, and helmet all around. I will delegate judgment to them, and they shall judge you according to their judgments. I will set my jealousy against you, and they shall deal furiously with you. They shall remove, notice, they shall remove your nose and your ears, and your remnant shall fall by the sword. They shall take your sons and your daughters, and your remnant shall be devoured by fire. They shall also strip you of your clothes and take away your beautiful jewelry. Thus I will make you cease your lewdness and your, idol, your harlotry brought from the land of Egypt so that you will not lift up your eyes to them, nor remember Egypt any more. For thus says the Lord God, Surely I will deliver you into the hand of those that you hate, into the hand of those from whom you alienated yourself. They will deal hatefully with you, take away all that you have worked for, and leave you naked and bare. The nakedness of your harlotry shall be uncovered, both your lewdness and your harlotry. And I will do these things to you, notice why, because you have gone as a harlot after the Gentiles, because you have become defiled by their idols. You have walked in the way of your sister, therefore I will put her cup in your hand. Thus says the Lord God, you shall drink of your sister's cup, the deep and wide one. You shall be laughed to scorn and held in derision. It contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, the cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You shall drink and drain it. You shall break its shards and tear at your own breast, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. Therefore, thus, thus, thus says the Lord God, because you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back, therefore you shall bear the penalty of your lewdness and your, and your harlotry. The judgment 
Man, it's made clear. If God punished Samaria for her sins, and if, Ju- if Judah sinned worse than Samaria, her sister, then Judah has to be punished too. In this part of Ezekiel's message, he delivered four prophecies from the Lord. First, God would bring the Babylonians to punish Judah just like he brought the Assyrians to punish Samaria in verses 22 through 27. Ezekiel described in detail the officers in the army and the equipment that they would carry. Using the image of punishing a prostitute, he described how the invaders would strip the nation, expose her lewdness, and mutilate her body. It is not a pretty picture. This is the way that adulteresses were, pro- uh, were punished among the Egyptians and Chaldeans. The oriental beauties, these beautiful women, women who wore these ornaments in their ears and noses, they would cut off the nose and their ears. That was an ancient punishment for idolatry. The place that they would embellish the most and, the, and what people would see first, again, the face, the nose, and the ears, they were cut off. They couldn't embellish them anymore. So Judah was the spiritual adulteress symbolically. How fair the payback. payback. That again, the features most decorated would be cut off, would be mutilated. The second prophecy is in verse 28 through 31. And it repeats some of the things in the first judgment and reminded the people that this judgment was perfectly fair. And this is something we need to always remember. That God's judgment is perfectly fair. It's always right. He's never wrong because he has all the facts. Because he sees all things. At one time, Judah courted, you know, went after the friendship of Babylon. But, But now it says they hated the Babylonians. And yet God allowed the people, God would allow the people that they hated to ravage their land destroy Jerusalem and the temple. The third prophecy is in verse 32 and 34, through 34. This prophecy uses the image of the cup, an image that's often used in Scripture for experiencing suffering. The cup God hands them is going to be big. It's going to be deep, and it's going to be filled with His wrath, and they are going to have to drink it, every bit of it. And the last prophecy in verse 35, explained why God judged his people. Verse 22, 12 says, because they had forgotten him and because they had turned their backs on him. In other words, they had rejected God. They left him out of their thinking. They left them out of their daily lives. There was no fear for God or of God Before their eyes, as Paul said. And God's wife had become a prostitute and had abandoned her husband, speaking of himself. Jeremiah used a similar language in Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, and was astonished that the nation should change its gods. Paul said in Galatians 1, 6 through 7, speaking to the Galatians, he says, I marvel. The word means shocked. In today's language, hey, I'm blown away that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which really is not another gospel. There's but one gospel. 
And, and if you don't follow the true gospel, the only thing that you can be following is a lie. Jeremiah said Judah had rejected the fountain of living water. And they turned to broken cisterns that couldn't hold water. And then in verses 36 through 39, I'm sorry, 36 through 49, Israel's record, their history is reviewed. And, and after God reviews their history with them, it's pretty much, it's a picture of a court case. Before they pronounce sentence, they'd read, they read the charges. This is what you're being sentenced for. So once their record is reviewed, the charges are then brought up against them, and then their sentence is given. The judgment is predicted. Let's look at verses 36 through 49. <clears throat> the Lord also said to me, Son of man, will you judge Ahola and Aholibah? Then declare to them their abominations. Notice, he says, if you're going to declare judgment upon them, then tell them what their abominations are. And he begins in verse 37. And he's going to tell them now. For they have committed adultery, and blood is on their hands. They have committed adultery with their idols, and even sacrificed their sons whom they bore to me, passing them through the fire to devour them. Moreover, they have done this to me. They have defiled my sanctuary on the same day and profaned my Sabbath. For after they had slain their children for their idols, on the same day they came into my sanctuary to profane it. Can you imagine? The very same day they would take their children and sacrifice them to the, to the gods, they would go to church and worship God like nothing happened. And indeed, he says, thus they have done, notice, in the midst of my house. Verse 40. Furthermore, you sent for men to come from afar, to whom a messenger was sent, and there they came. And you washed yourself for them. You painted your eyes, and you adorned yourself with ornaments. You sat on a stately couch with a table prepared before it, on which you had set my incense and my oil. The sound of a carefree multitude was with her, and Sabaeans were brought from the wilderness with men of the common sort who put bracelets on their wrists and beautiful crowns on their heads. Then I said, concerning her who had grown old in, adul in adulteries, will they commit harlotry with her now and she with them? Yet they went into her as men go into a woman who plays the harlot. Thus they went into a holy bar, that is again Israel and Judah, they elude the lewd women, but righteous men will judge them after, after the manner of adulteresses and after the manner of women who shed blood because they are adulteresses and blood is on their hands. For thus says the Lord God, bring up an assembly against them. Give them up to trouble and plunder. The assembly shall stone them with stones and ex execute them with their swords. They shall slay their sons and their daughters and burn their houses with fire. Thus I will cause lewdness to cease from the land, and that all women may be taught not to practice your lewdness. They shall repay you for your lewdness, and you shall pay for your idolatrous sins. <clears throat> then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So the two accused sisters, again, Ahola and Aholibah, representing Israel and Judah, both of them have been presented, like, like I said, in the courtroom. They've been presented to the court. 
their, their crimes were explained to them. I mean, can you imagine? And I thought about this in heaven when the unbeliever stands before God and the books are open and their sins are, are presented to them. I mean, I, I, you can't run away. You can't hide. You will just cringe in the holy presence of God when those sins are listed. The things that you thought, no, how did they, how did he, how did they find out? How did they, how'd they find out? How did God know? He's God. He knows all things. So, they're, 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 they're in the court of God. Their crimes are presented to them. Now all that's left is for the judge to wrap up the case, give them their sentence, and that's what Ezekiel is doing in verses 36 through, 30, through 49. Neither Samaria, that is Ahola, or Jerusalem, nor Judah, Aholibah, there was nothing they could say. They had no leg to stand on. They couldn't argue their case. There wasn't a higher case that they could take their, 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 their there wasn't a higher court that they could take their case to. God's verdict is just and it's final. Ezekiel includes, includes Samaria in this, this summation. So that Judah can't say, well, you know, your treatment, God, of the, of the northern kingdom wasn't fair. All the evidence was given, and there could only be one verdict, guilty. What were their sins? Idolatry, injustice, unbelief that was evidenced by depending on the heathen nations for help, followed by just straight-out hypocrisy. I mean, it couldn't be more obvious. They worshipped idols. They killed innocent people. Their children. And then, like I said, they would walk piously into the temple to worship God. On the very same day that they sacrificed their children to their idols, they boldly, piously, as if nothing had happened, as if they'd done nothing. They, he says, they, you, you came into my temple to worship me. And, you, and by doing so, you came in and you defiled my house. And I wonder how many times we as Christians maybe have sinned or are living in sin and then we walk into God's house in that sin and we raise our hands to the Lord, sing the songs and we praise Him like nothing has happened. And we defile His house. They prostituted themselves to heathen nations. They went to them for help and, and worshipped their idols. If they had trust in the Lord, He would have taken care of them and He would have delivered them. In their idolatry, they, like I said, they even sacrificed their own children. He says in verse 37, who, they, who you bore to me, they were my children. How important that is to remember that with our children. They're my kids. I have given them to you. I have blessed you with them to raise them in my way so that they can grow up to be you know, adults that will go out and raise their kids in the Lord and be witnesses to me and of me. They're my kids. When Judah should have stayed 
a separated people from the heathen nations, and they should have been declaring their faith in Jehovah God. They should have been a light to the dark nations around them. Their leaders participated in this international conference getting together against Babylon, and they joined themselves with the enemies of the Lord. And Ezekiel described how the Jewish leaders at, these, at, at the meeting behaved like harlots getting ready to serve a customer in verse 41. But he compared the meeting to a drunken brawl and a carefree multitude, no, no cares in the world, that didn't want to face the fact that, the, that Babylon was going to win. From God's point of view, Judah was nothing but a worn-out adulteress. Going after lovers, soliciting lovers. And their sin was something his heart couldn't accept. As Samaria, or Ahola, had sinned by partnering with Assyria, so was Judah, Aholibah. She was playing the harlot by seeking the help of pagan nations instead of trusting in the Lord. So that being the case, Judah, Aholibah, would be treated like an adulteress, and even worse. The law of Moses called for the adulteress to be stoned, Prostitutes were to be burned. Murderers were to be put to death, probably by stoning. Judah, though, would be punished for her adultery, her prostitution, and shedding of innocent blood. Her sins were found out. And the Bible says, your sins will find you out. We can't hide them from God. We can't keep them from God. In closing, God demands holiness. It's not a suggestion. It's not something that he says, hey, I would really appreciate if you did this. You're my people. He demands holiness. And he demands a standard of righteousness, you know, that will show his love to others. It will show his character to others. They will see, hey, we know God. We're living a standard of righteousness that belongs to God. They will see the light. They will see the testimony. He demands that the standards of holiness that are found in the requirements of the law in Exodus chapter 20 are to be lived out every day in the lives of his people. So again, it's a pretty heavy chapter, especially at the end when he presents the sins to the people. He announces, their judge, he, he announces that they're guilty and then he tells them this is what's going to happen. And you know the New Testament does that to the, to the New Testament church. God says, hey, I sent my son to die on a cross for the forgiveness of your sins. But if you reject him, and you live the way you want to in the rejection of, of my gift of salvation and you live in your sins and you die in your sins, the only thing that I can do is, is let you know, present your, what, your, your sins while on this earth from the, the, you know, God's book. And then pronounce, you're guilty. 
and your judgment. And so we need to, again, just as this was a serious message to God's people at that time, hey, it's just as serious and applicable to us, God's people, today. And we need to keep that in mind. Father, thank you so much, as always, for your word. Father, the power of your word, the preciseness of your word, God. The depth of your word, Lord. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who, who God put it on the pages of this wonderful book, God. But Father, they don't do us any good if they stay on the pages. That is, if your words just stay on the pages, Lord. May we bring them into our heart, Lord. May they apply to us and may we apply them to our life every day and to our words every day. Lord, let them see the righteous standards and principles that we are called to live by, Lord, that we can be a light in a dark place, that we can shine brightly among the heathen, God. Lord, we thank you for our salvation. We thank you for our Savior. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right.